So, you know, Andy and I went to, you know, we were in school together, and uh, in junior high, uh, both of us were kind of uh, weird kids. This is Gil Gevins. He would eventually become one of Andy's oldest and dearest friends. We sat at this table in the cafeteria for lunch where all the uh, kind of the outcasts sat, you know, the uh, what they call nerds today, the audiovisual types, the kids who ran the projectors and stuff. And Andy would, you know, he kept trying to kind of, you know, uh, make friends with me. And, you know, neither one of us really had very many friends, if any. And, you know, I resisted just because I was a strange kid, but he just seemed a lot stranger than me even than I I couldn't really, you know, deal with him. And then finally, one time I said, yeah, I would, you know, he invited me to go to the city with him to see a movie and go to the show. And he said he was going to treat me and all that. So I said, okay. So <laughs> we went to go see, you know, this is all his doing, uh, this movie called How the West Was Won. And it was a big deal because it was in CinemaScope or something. And it was like the, you had to go to a special theater with an extra wide screen. With its spirited romance, it's lusty Old West fun, and it's breathtaking action spectacle. The most fabulous film ever conceived from any standpoint. You went to this theater, I forget where it was, you know, 7th Avenue or somewhere with its enormously wide screen, and Andy insisted on sitting in the first row, you know. <laughs> you couldn't really see anything sitting in the first row because just an insanely big screen. You would stick your head up and like you could see maybe like a third of what was happening. Uh, anyway, after that, he said, okay, we're going to go to see his friends. And his friends, and this was actually the main reason that I, I, did, I said yes to going, because his friends had uh, a fascination parlor in Times Square. What's important to keep in mind here is that the Times Square of the 60s, the one that existed on the night in the city with Andy, was a far cry from the Times Square of today. Today it's a spot that families on vacation visit to get souvenirs or to take selfies under the bright lights of the Disney store. But back then, it was known for its adult theaters and bars and sex shops. The epitome of Times Square during this time was a little museum of curiosities called Hubert's, located in the basement of a Penny Arcade on 42nd Street. So we go downstairs and uh, we sit down, you know, and uh, we were the only people in the audience. And this show was, you know, a tattooed, the guy with, covered with tattoos, uh, a woman with a, you know, live snake wrapped around her. Anyway, they all knew Andy and, you know, they just made a big fuss of him. And I was, I was impressed because, you know, you're 14 years old, you know, he knows all these adults, not only does he know them, but, you know, they're knows him very well, so he must have gone to that place, I don't know, dozens and dozens of times. And, you know, really an odd thing for a 14-year-old kid just to do on his own. It just really put me off, and I couldn't deal with him. I mean, I just, you know, I, I didn't want to be friends with him after that. He was just too weird even for me. When I was 15, I started smoking pot, and when I started smoking pot, I got Andy. And before that, you know, to me, he was just this weird, crazy kid. And then I realized he was hilariously funny. And really, nobody thought he was funny but me. I mean, you know, not his parents, uh, his family, uh, other kids. But that's, that's basically how we got to be friends. And we remained, you know, really good friends uh, his whole life. My name is Christopher Allen Maloney, and this is Knowing Andy Kaufman a podcast documentary series about trying to understand who one of the most enigmatic entertainers in modern history really was. 
if that's even possible. Ladies and gentlemen, so far, everything I've done for you, really, I'm only fooling. This is really me. This is episode three, F Troop. I met Andy in the fourth grade. This is Greg Sutton. I was living in uh, Great Neck, New York, which is on Long Island, a suburb of New York City, and so was he. And uh, I mean, I had always seen Andy, and he was like, you know, kind of a strange kid and a stranger to me. We discovered that we were both Elvis fans and Olatunji fans. Olatunji was a drummer from Nigeria, a man credited with introducing America to world music. He performed at Andy's elementary school when Andy and Greg were classmates. I really think that that, you know, Andy's whole thing with Congress and everything started that day, you know, which, uh, you know, in retrospect. It's a world of- And from that day on, we were, we were pals, you know, we liked each other. And not that many kids in the fourth grade really liked Andy because Andy was strange, you know. <laughs> he was always strange. But anyway, so I knew him from then, basically through his whole life. Andy's childhood fixation with Elvis and this percussionist from Africa were unusual enough in themselves. The fact that they brought him together with another kid his age is pretty astonishing. Greg Sutton would leave Great Neck for New York City with his family after the sixth grade. But there was one more shared experience, an incident of pure, childish misconduct that strengthened their bond. There was this kid, Herbie Plain, and uh, he was like even, he, he was, you know, he was like one of those kids who was like, uh, he wore glasses and had a bad kind of Hitler haircut and, you know, would wear shorts to school. He just, he was not cool at all. It was his birthday and he brought a pineapple upside down cake. And first, you know, I was expecting chocolate and I just, you know, he gave me a piece and I just said, I hate pineapple upside down cake. And I smashed it on his head. The whole place turned into a riot. You know, kids just went nuts. The the uh, teacher wound up having a nervous breakdown. Her husband had to be called. She was like lying on the on the desk. God, it was a mess. It was chaos. And Andy loved that. You know, after that, I was like really in with Andy. <laughs> and Andy was a you know he was an anarchist and. He, you know, I mean, he did some of the meanest stuff I've ever seen. It was great. It was funny, but mean, you know, I mean, most comics are a little bit mean. 
The following few years of Andy's childhood were prolific, albeit kind of lonely. But for a kid who preferred to stay in his room to write or play records or rehearse for entertaining at birthday parties, what else could they be? He was always doing those children's parties, you know. Uh, he, he would perform at children's parties. And that's what turned into his act, really, later on. Because, you know, he just, uh, that's what came naturally to him. Plus, you know, I mean, his ideas expanded. When we were kids, he, uh, you know, he had written a book already, which was <laughs> almost un unreadable. This is Glenn Barrett, Greg Sutton's cousin, who would befriend Andy as a teenager. Just a note here to say that I spoke to Glenn in person uh, from a safe distance at a park in Massachusetts. So the sound quality is a little different from the rest of the interviews. And he'd already been doing the, you know, the kids, you must have heard about the kids shows he did. You know, that's, you know, that's how he, he started, really. And he used a lot of that same stuff, you know. Now Andy uh, needed glasses really badly, and in high school he refused to wear them. Gil Gavins again. So he was always uh, squinting all the time. And uh, for whatever, for that reason, uh, he got a reputation for being on drugs, and he was not on drugs. But, uh, yeah, and, you know, in sports, because uh, he couldn't see, you know, they'd throw the football at him in gym class and he'd just bounce off his chest. He got a reputation for being, like, totally uncoordinated and all that. But it all had to do with uh, his vanity, not wanting to wear glasses. And you know, none of, nobody knew that. He told me this years later. Uh, <laughs> kind of like a confession. We didn't know it at the time. I just thought Andy was always squinting or staring off into space because he was nuts. I didn't know that he needed glasses. And uh, the way we became friends again was uh, in 10th grade, He was uh, we were walking in the hall and he came walking up to me. He was wearing uh, this very large legalized pot button that he bought in Greenwich Village. And Andy hadn't smoked pot. And, you know, I did, and I was very paranoid about getting, you know, busted back in those days. And I said, you know, Andy, what are you doing? You can't put that away. You can't go walking around with that button. He goes, why not? He goes, well, you get us in trouble. And he goes, oh, okay. Anyway, we became friends after that and uh, then, you know, formed F Troop and all that other stuff. The end of the Civil War was near when quite accidentally... Hero who sneezed abruptly seized retreat and reversed it to victory. His medal of honor pleased We used to watch F Troop after class because it was after school and high school because it was so stupid, it was funny. And uh, yeah, it was kind of a self deprecating uh, thing to call yourself because F Troop, they were a bunch of fuck ups, you know, so. And then, you know, I introduced him to uh, uh, Doug DeSoto, who became his really good friend. And then, you know, Glenn, uh, Andy went to New York and brought uh, Greg and his cousin Glenn back to Great Neck. He well, just showed up out of nowhere and... Uh... Glenn happened to be living in the same apartment building as his cousin Greg at the time. He said that we should uh, come back to Great Neck and hang out there and that we'd get lots of girls and people would stop us. We did that, you know, we came back to another room. John Lennon had, and Beatles, Bob Dylan had, whatever you want to call them. I had my harmonica. Greg and I both brought our guitars, I'm pretty sure. We sat around in the park near uh, the train station and played music. And of course, people uh, showed up. And, you know, I guess we were a curiosity. 
So because of marijuana and pineapple upside down cake and 60s counterculture, Andy became something he had never been before, part of a group. And, you know, that was, uh, that was our, our little, you know, cadre of rebellious kids back then. Greg Sutton. We looked a little bit more scruffy than kids, you know, longer hair and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's not like we were dangerous at all. <laughs> you know, it, that just, you know, it, cost, it, was, it was a new thing to be like, uh, you know, smoking pot and getting together in, in the parks and groups like that, you know. So, you know, Andy was just like, uh, he was the craziest of, of us, and we were kind of crazy kids. I know we were kind of a special group. We had a really strong bond. And, you know, we were also, you know, different from everybody else. We were kind of like, you know, the outcasts. So we, we really, uh, we really grooved on the fact that, you know, we were different from everybody. And, you know, Andy, Andy used to really, you know, torment us with Elvis, making us, you know, because we didn't like Elvis. You know, we were into the Beatles and the Stones and Dylan and all that. And we took an acid trip once, and Andy made us listen to an entire Elvis Presley album on the acid trip. And it was like, <laughs> never forgave him for that one. <laughs> F Troop would divide their time between the quiet suburb of Great Neck and the streets of New York City. I mean, you know, we were wild in New York, but, you know, it was New York, <laughs> We do crazy things in the city. I, you know, I remember taking an acid trip with Andy once. One of the other guys must might have been with us. And there, were, there used to be this thing on McDougal Street. It was like a brand new thing it was called spin art. I'm not sure exactly what it was exactly, but it was some sort of way of making art for kids and stuff. And I remember standing there and <laughs> totally high out of our minds. And we just started playing. You're not supposed to play with this stuff, you know. So we were making, we were putting it all over ourselves. <laughs> I think they asked us to leave. We often got asked to leave, you know. Yeah, I would think so. Which we loved, of course. I want to mention here that though there are a few references uh, to Andy drinking and doing recreational drugs as a member of F Troop, it was a habit that he would give up completely when he began meditating. There'll be a lot more about that in a later episode. I mean, he always had those eyes, you know, he never blinked. <laughs> it was a strange thing. So, I mean, that's a sign of neural activity on some level, right? When we were all hanging out, he would just act like himself. I mean, you know, he, he was interested in some strange stuff and wanted us, he, he loved Times Square. So we'd make, you know, we, we'd all go to Times Square, which was, you know, just like cheap honky tonks. You know, it was very sleazy. He liked that, you know, he liked sleaze. He was attracted to sleaze. And, you know, we all were, but I mean, he was, he, he liked it on that circus level. By this time, Andy had moved his bedroom into the basement of his parents' house. This would become F Troop's unofficial headquarters. Glenn Barrett. We basically lived either in his little basement room, which had a little window so we could get in and out without anybody seeing us, or in Gil's, uh, in Gil's house. First time I ever got arrested was after a, a period of time at his parents' house where we decided that we would drink everything in the liquor cabinet. And we did. And we drank, I mean, little, you know, little bits of everything. And we were 
totally wasted, and walked up to the bu nearest bus stop, completely drunk. And, uh, and I got arrested. They left Andy standing there. <laughs> he was always the one who sort of, I was always the one getting into trouble, and he always was on the sideways going, why aren't you taking me with you, kind of thing. I mean, he would have been more than happy to come to the police station with me, I'm sure. The thing to understand about Andy, I think, which, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I hadn't thought about it in a while. But we used to, when we were hanging out, we used to talk about making sure that we experienced everything in life. And for Andy, that meant, you know, all the bad stuff, too. Like, you know, that was, that was Andy, you know. He just wanted to learn everything, you know, whatever it was. But what love was, what smoking was, you know, what getting into trouble was. And, uh, you know, that was what we did. We tried to experience everything, especially him. One night when we were, uh, I was living in the city by that, by this point, me and my cousin, and, but we, we were hanging out, a friend of ours had a car, drove Andy and uh, my other two friends, Gil and Doug, into the city, and we, we drove around. We went to, uh, you know, Greenwich Village or wherever, and then we drove out to Great Neck for the night, and it was snowing, so we all stayed in Andy's house. And... Um, he did his act for us for the first time. He said, you know, I'm doing, I have a, a children's party tomorrow. If it's not snowed out and I have to rehearse, do you, do you guys want to see what I do? You know, and it was, that, that night, it was, it was amazing. It was funny. And of course, the Elvis imitation was pretty good already. So, um, that was the first night that I ever got a glimmer of, like, you know, what was to come. And, and, and realized that he, Andy was, was funny, he was good, you know. I thought it was hilarious, you know, and sooner or later maybe, you know, people will catch up and get him, and, you know, they did eventually. It isn't lost on me what a seismic event this winter night must have been for Andy's friends. How often do we get to see something completely original, especially in person and from such an unexpected source? It must have been, in their lives at least, a genuine miracle. A few years later, while Andy was studying broadcasting at Graham Junior College in Boston, the first person to book him for a performance on campus would similarly describe seeing what Andy could do for the first time. In this case, Andy was performing a one-act play he had written in a small room, surrounded by his fellow students. The performance that I saw, um, it was theater of the mind. This is Al Perinello, a fellow Graham alumni and friend. We were all sitting on the floor, and Andy was, um, yeah, there was a chair, but mostly he was standing, and sometimes he would sit down with us, and uh, he pulled this off brilliantly. Every one of us um, thought that we were, that there were props and, and lights and magic going on on this stage, but really it was all in our minds. And with his sound effects, his body language, his uh, ability to uh, speak dialects, we saw dozens of people and the high was unbelievable. The high was just unbelievable. It was like, what the hell are we watching here? 
It wasn't one man talking to us. It was multiple people, multiple personalities. And he, he just, he brought it alive, just brought it alive. Before that snowy night in Andy's underground bedroom or subsequent nights in places like the campus coffee shop in Boston, it was virtually impossible to say who or what, if anything, Andy Kaufman might become. He was driving a cab in Great Neck, which was, you know, of course, second or third rate. It just, it was, he was shooting very low. (laughs) All of us just had this, you know, our, our impression of Andy was just someone who was just so crazy and, you know, so out to lunch and disconnected from everything that, you know, how could he possibly make it doing anything in society? And now my mother felt sorry for Andy, you know, when he came over, she used to feed him and she was one of the few uh, parents who liked Andy. And, you know, she, she just thought he was like a nice little Jewish boy, but he was, you know, weird and strange. And like I say, she felt sorry for him. She thought he was kind of a lost soul. Andy was looking like he was going to become a wino or something, you know. And then when he started performing, he started performing at this local club called My Father's Place in Roslyn, which was the next town over from Great Neck. And he was performing on open mic night you know, amateur hour or whatever. Eventually, uh, they liked him enough. He got a following. They they started paying him to be like an actual act. And, you know, so we all went to see him. And, uh, you know, my reaction was that, uh, you know, he had a real chance to, uh, you know, make it. Uh, and if he didn't, he would wind up probably, you know, as a bum on the street. You know, he obviously had a lot of talent. And, you know, seeing him on stage really brought that home, just hanging around with him and you know, all of the shticks that he would do for us or whatever, just in the course of a daily life, you know. We thought he was funny, but we didn't think anybody else would appreciate him. But seeing him on stage, and also how the audience reacted when he did Elvis. They just loved him. He just liked to pull people's chains, you know, uh, manipulating their, you know, their emotions and you know, one of the greatest things about, because, uh, you know, I knew Andy much, I mean, I know Andy his whole life, but, you know, we spent a lot more time together when we were younger. But, you know, one of the great things uh, when he was starting to make it, before anyone knew who he was, his nightclub act was just, you know, uh, fantastic to watch because nobody knew who this guy was. And he really had them convinced, you know, in the beginning of the act that he was this horrible you know, foreigner uh, comedian, you know, this the, wor- the world's worst comedian with his foreign accent, you know, and then when he did Elvis, everybody was just totally thrilled, and then he would, you know, proceed to piss them off again, and then win them over again, and, you know, just, that's what he loved to do. I mean, it was more than, you know, getting adulation or whatever, he just liked to get them, you know, pissed off and then get them on his side. It was kind of like, I don't know, some kind of personal redemption thing he had. Of course, Andy would become famous and move away from Great Neck. And for whatever reason, a sense of loyalty because they had been some of the first to believe in him, or maybe just because it was hard for Andy to make new friends, F Troop would remain a significant part of his life. In 1979, when Andy played Carnegie Hall in New York, the members of F Troop, along with all their mothers, were there in the front row. Except for Greg Sutton, he was up on stage with Andy, directing the live band. You know, when he asked me to, to be his, his musical guy, he sort of, you know, did it from a place of, well, you know, because, um, you know, I, w- I was playing with big-time musicians, et cetera, et cetera, and had a record contract, all that. 
So he said, you know, I'm probably, I mean, I'm probably not good enough to have somebody like you. And it was, you know, just the opposite. But we, you know, I put a really good band behind them. People who, like, especially when it came to playing the Elvis stuff, we played it like the early records, you know. So that was, and it was fun. You know, it was great to play with Andy. <laughs> you know, he, he was funny. You know, and not only that, but musically, he was right on the money. Ladies and gentlemen. We prepared for the Carnegie Hall show for months, right? Just months and months went into it. Part of the backdrop of the Carnegie Hall show was that Robin Williams, unrecognizable in complete hair and makeup, sat on stage and played the part of Andy's grandmother throughout the night. So here we are at Carnegie Hall, right? We're, we're walking on stage and he wanted me to wear, uh, you know, tails and white gloves. And um, Robin Williams, was sitting at the back of the stage, dressed in a pink dress as his grandmother. We're about to go on. I mean, and somebody who's performing, you know, it's his, his one man show at Carnegie Hall, not only would be nervous, but if he was gonna always be in character, he, that's, that's the time to be in character, you know, 15 minutes before the show. Anyway, he noticed that um, Robin Williams had very hairy hands, you know, so it didn't look right. So he, he comes up to me and he says, um, just like we were in the fifth grade or something, he said, um, Greg, uh, do you mind if I, if I take you, don't get mad now, but <laughs> we need your, your gloves for grandma because <laughs> grandma has hairy hands. I mean, he was just being him, you know? This is like, you know, 15 minutes before curtain. He obviously was talking to me the way he talked to me my whole life. Gil Gevins and his mother sat together in the front row. They really got along very well together, which was really odd. And because my mother didn't get along with anyone, really didn't like anybody. And when he did Carnegie Hall, you know, we were in the first row in the center and he sang Elvis to her and, you know, tossed, tossed her uh, his jacket. Did you find your sweetheart? All our families were at that. That was hilarious. I was there. My mother was there. Going, always saying to me, I don't understand. Is this supposed to be? <laughs> you know, like, uh, Gil was, Gil's parents were there. I mean, it was like, it was crazy. Robin Williams was on stage pretending to be grand Andy's grandmother. And of course, Greg was the conductor of, of the show. That was really fun. He was having a blast. It was such a, a wonderful night. And then we all went for milk and cookies. Before I said, I, I said that if you're all good, we're all going to go out for milk and cookies. Well... I've hired, okay, now you've all been very good, really have, okay, and um, I'd like to take you all out for milk and cookies now, so if you'll all please in an orderly manner, there's 20 buses out waiting for you outside, wait and listen to instructions, there are enough buses for everyone if the buses each make two trips, so everyone who gets out... The Carnegie Hall concert, with every member of F Troop in attendance, 
was a lifelong dream of Andy's that came true. Even the milk and cookies excursion was all part of this fantasy he had of taking thousands of people out for a treat and making it part of the act. It was certainly a far cry from having been seen as something of a lost cause before his friends got a hint of his talent. There had been a time when, besides being in danger of becoming an alcoholic or ending up unemployable and on the streets, Andy had been, along with many men of his generation, in the position of possibly being drafted for military service in Vietnam. Back then, everyone was trying to get out of the draft. Uh, the government was desperate for warm bodies. They had done away with the uh, college deferment, instituted the uh, draft lottery. And uh, Andy's psychiatrist, he'd been going to a psychiatrist anyway. Some of us you know, went to psychiatrists to get out of the army, but Andy had been going to some kind of psychologist since he was a little kid. Gill also was at risk of being drafted. When you wanted to get a deferment to get out of the draft, um, it was very hard to get a 4F, which was a permanent uh, deferment. I mean, you had to have one leg. Everybody would get a, a, I think it was called a 1Y, 1Y or 1A, which was a temporary deferment, meaning at some point they could reassess you and, and, and stick you in the Army. Well, they gave Andy a 4F immediately, and he was literally the only person I knew to get a 4F. It was just so clear that he was, you know, unfit for military service. And he showed me his, uh, his letter to get out of the draft from the psychiatrist. And the note went something like this. Uh, Every teacher from the first grade on has noticed that Andy was detached. He has scored zero on every reality test ever given. To this day, I don't know what a reality test is, but that's what the note said. Uh, and, you know, it just went on and on, you know, to describe this, you know, very troubled... Uh, young man who, you know, there is no way he should be let near a gun. <laughs> but I thought it was, you know, as far as it went, it was pretty accurate because that really described Andy. You know, he was in a fantasy world most of the time. And the amazing thing is that his fantasy world, uh, when he became famous, wound up coinciding with reality. And, uh, you know, he was still living his, totally living his fantasy life, but all of a sudden it was real. You know, he wanted to be a performer. He wanted to you know, wrestle beautiful women, all of his fantasies that he'd had since he was an adolescent or, or, or even before that uh, wound up becoming true. Andy was a strange, strange guy, but also, you know, he got to lead. He was like one of the happiest people I knew. I mean, he, he understood how lucky he was. And he, you know, he, he had a lot of fun with his success. Uh, you know, he, I mean, taking an audience, spending your own money to take an audience for cookies and milk, that, you know, that's, uh, most people wouldn't do that. You know, he just, you know, he did strange things with his money even to, you know, to enjoy himself. Besides being Andy's musical director, Greg Sutton has written songs for Joe Cocker and Percy Sledge and has played alongside the likes of Bob Dylan. He's still a working musician in Los Angeles. Every Sunday morning, he goes live on Facebook to perform for whoever is around. Tears in my heart, not in mine. My world's turning dark, my well's running dry. Each
Andy was kind of, I don't know, you know, he was like, people are still now just catching up to him a little bit. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's never been anybody who, there are very few people like who will get on a stage and, you know, walk that tightrope without a net, you know, because that's really a tightrope. I mean, he's, he would call his routine, part of his routine, bombing, you know, where he'd come on stage and here's this nerdy looking guy. I mean, especially at, like at, when he first was like hitting the clubs and people didn't know who he was, you know, like the Gravis or whatever. Um, you know, he'd come on stage and start telling bad jokes in a stupid accent, you know, also that he could, you know, you start to feel sorry for him, then angry that he was wasting your time. And then he'd show you that he, you know, was miles ahead of you. Nobody, who else does that kind of stuff? As the friend of Andy's who knew him the longest, Greg watched him for about 25 years from the best seat in the house. People like Andy, you know, I, I don't think it had anything to do with the upbringing. I think he would have been Andy no matter where he was born. I, you know, I don't believe that you're, I mean, your, your surroundings have an effect on you, but there's also DNA. And, you know, Andy was a genius. There aren't that many geniuses born. They're not born because their parents are geniuses. You know, they're born geniuses. And, you know, maybe, maybe they can't add two and two, but, you know, Michael reflects the parents, right? But, I mean, even though he's smarter, uh, but, but he's a more normal guy. Uh, and, you know, he played it, played it just exactly right, et cetera, et cetera. Andy, just a completely different kid in the same room, in the same home. Just, you know, I mean, people are, if it wasn't for people like that, it would be a very dull world. I mean, Bob Dylan doesn't reflect his parents at all. You know, most, most, I don't think James Brown, I mean, reflects his parents. You know, I don't think his father wears capes and shit like that. Thank you very much for uh, being here. Andy, let me, uh, let's take care of your uh, neck injury. Now, when was the, when was the match? April 5th, right? Mm -hmm. And it's now uh, almost August. This is from an appearance on Letterman in 1982. Uh, uh, do you still need that neck brace on there? Yes. Yeah? I do. Are you in a lot of pain? Well, uh, I'm not in uh, as m nearly as much pain as I was. and It's, it's healing, but uh, it's still enough to wear the brace. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. One of those kind of nagging, lingering injuries that... I don't know what you call it, but I just have to wear the brace. Now, um... <laughs> Last time I saw him, I was living in San Francisco, and he came to visit me. And, uh, you know, I answered the door, and he's standing there with a neck brace on. And I didn't know anything about what had, you know, what had been going on with this. I said, Andy, you okay? And he goes, uh, he comes inside. And I was living in a small studio apartment, and he, and he comes inside. He goes, is there anybody here? I go, no, no, Andy, look, it's just me and you. He goes, oh, okay. And he, and he takes off the neck brace. And I go, what's with the neck brace? He goes, well, didn't you see it? I go, see what? He goes, you know, it was in the National Enquirer. And I go, Andy, I don't read the National Enquirer. <laughs> he 
goes, well, you know, this guy, you know, and he told me the whole story about that, you know, he pretended the guy paralyzed his neck. He never told his parents. They thought it was all real, and they were just completely, totally freaked out. They really thought that Andy had some kind of neck injury and shit. <laughs> Which was, you know, that was uh, kind of funny all by itself. Anyway, that was the last time I saw him, and we wound up uh, in the Tenderloin at this all-night, you know, uh, like diner-type place that uh, it was like 5 in the morning, 4 in the morning. And, you know, the only people in the place at that hour were, were cops and hookers. So, you know, Andy and I go in there, and he couldn't find a hooker he liked, by the way. But, you know, so we're sitting there having coffee or whatever, and... All the hookers are staring at us. All the cops are staring at us. And again, yeah, this is definitely the last time I was with Andy. And uh, finally, you know, one of the hookers comes over and she goes, are you that guy on TV, Andy Calvin? You know, and Andy goes, uh, yes. He was always very nice with, with people, you know, uh, people who just would come up to him. And uh, she goes, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. You know, and he goes, no, I'm, I'm, I'm Andy Kaufman. And they said, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Let me see some ID. <laughs> you know, it's like five in the morning, this hooker asking Andy Kaufman for ID in this, you know, in the tenderloin. It's pretty bizarre. And so Andy actually takes out his driver license and shows it to her. And she goes, it is. It's him. It's him. It's this Andy Kaufman. Next thing you know, look, all the hookers are at the table asking for his autograph. And then when he's done with them, all the cops came over and wanted his autograph. So, you know, that was kind of, that was my last time I saw Andy. They dropped me off at my house about six in the morning. You know, Andy was like, you know, he was a very complicated person. You know, he was a really nice person and he was also could be really cruel and mean to people. and. Uh, you know, especially if it involved, you know, performance or something to do with his, his art. He was very aware of all of his, all of his insanities. You know, he knew when he was being, you know, crazy, ridiculous, uh, aggravating and all that. And, you know, he kind of got off on it. Andy was uh, an extremely difficult person to know, to get to know. He was not very open, I'll put it that way. You know, uh, he did not really communicate uh, that much. And, you know, he, he would when he would get enthusiastic about something, but uh, most of the time you really didn't know if he was, uh, you know, putting you on or uh, that was, you know, I would say that that made it really hard to know him. And that, that's got to be a lot of the reason that, you know, people don't know you know, who is Andy Kaufman? You know, people ask me that all the time. What was he really like? I mean, it's not an easy question to answer. Knowing Andy Kaufman is produced and edited by me, Christopher Allen Maloney. For more information, find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Original music is by the lovely and talented Victoria Regal. Archival material is protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the Copyright Act of 1976 and is intended for educational and commentary purposes. Just a programming note, we're going dark for two weeks to observe the holidays, and then we'll be back with episode four, Can't Help Falling in Love, on January 12th, 2021. Please remember to be safe, and we'll talk to you in a few weeks.